Father, we're here in your presence. We don't deserve to be here, but we're here because of Jesus and his blood which was shed for us. And we're asking this morning that you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, just in the silence of our own hearts, wherever we're at, we want to give you full permission to speak to us this morning through the power of your word. Thank you, Father. You've promised that if we ask anything according to your will, we know that you hear, and that if you hear, that we will have the request which we've asked of you. And I know that you want to speak to every heart in this place in a powerful way. So, Father, may everything else be hid but Jesus. May your word be lifted up, and may our hearts be drawn closer to your throne this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This past Christmas, I was visiting family in Bakersfield, and I had a friend who came down from Modesto to visit with us. Now, we wanted to have some good family time together. It was the day after Christmas, and my mother-in-law wanted to know, what, what kind of food does your friend like, especially? And I told her that he, he liked pho. Have any of you ever had pho before? It's a big soup uh, that's Difficult to find a vegetarian version of it, but there are places that do that. Uh, but I told her that this is what he liked, and so she said, well, let's go to this place uh, in Bakersfield called the Noodle Bar. So we were driving in Bakersfield, and they were excited about this, so much so that there's a brand new pastor at their, their church, Bakersfield Hillcrest Church, and they wanted to invite the pastor and his wife to come along to be a part of this. And then they said, well, our friends also that we haven't seen in a while that Leah hasn't gotten to connect with from, from childhood, let's invite them to come too. So pretty soon we had this big group all going to have lunch together. And we're headed to the restaurant. We're excited. We're driving up. And just as we're driving up, the phone begins to ring. And it's the friends who had gotten there earlier. They said, it doesn't look like it's open. I said, oh no, it's, it has to be open. Today's the day after Christmas. So got out of the cars, walked up to the door. It says open, actually, right there on the, the doors. And pull on the door. No, it's not open. No food available. A restaurant, the day after Christmas, hungry people standing outside, and no food is available from this restaurant. Have you been hungry before and been denied food? It's not always a pleasant feeling. We were hoping for a delicious meal. And here they were saying, you can't eat now. Something similar happened to Jesus in Mark chapter 11. Go with me to Mark chapter 11. We've looked in Luke. We've looked in Matthew at this story of the triumphal entry. It's recorded in all four of the Gospels. But in Mark, he highlights some different things. Mark chapter 11, we pick up the story. The first verses of chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, again recount the triumphal entry, how Jesus came, and he came riding like a king into Jerusalem, just like the prophecies had foretold in Zechariah 9, verse 9, that he would come lowly and humble, riding on a donkey. Everyone knew that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was coming in the form of what prophecy had said the king would come. And as they saw him ride into Jerusalem, they knew that he was saying, I'm taking on this role of king. And then in verse 11, it tells us what Jesus did. It says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple. 
So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, to give you a little idea of the geography of Jerusalem and Bethany, I haven't actually been there myself, but I've read about it. The Mount of Olives was between Jerusalem and Bethany. Bethany was about 11 and a half miles away from Jerusalem. So when it says he went off to Bethany, we kind of think, well, okay, he walked home and went to stay at maybe Martha and Lazarus' house or maybe spent the night outside. No, he hiked 11 and a half miles over the Mount of Olives in order to get back to Bethany. And then the next morning, we pick up the story, verse 12. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany... Okay, so how far is he walking the next morning to get back to Jerusalem? Another 11 and a half miles. So you have a, Jesus and his disciples walking some 23 miles just to go back and forth to get from Jerusalem to Bethany back to Jerusalem. I don't know how many of you have ever hiked 23 miles before, but I went on a backpacking trip with Matt Giese this past summer and we hiked some 50 miles. And I can tell you that I had to eat more than ever during that trip. I was constantly hungry. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that he experienced everything that humans experience outside of sin. Okay, besides the results of sin, Jesus experienced the results of having committed sin. Jesus experienced what you do as a human being. Because look at how the verse continues. He was hungry. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows the feeling that we had standing in front of that restaurant and saying, we're hungry and we need food now. So Jesus is hungry. He's on his way back from Bethany. He's probably on the Mount of Olives and they're on their way toiling up, maybe headed back to Jerusalem. And he's hungry. So verse 13 says, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves. He sees this beautiful fig tree off in the distance. It's probably not right there along their path, but as he sees it off in the distance, he says, there, we can go to get breakfast. Apparently, he hadn't been served breakfast that day. Uh, Jesus said that he didn't have a place to lay his head. Maybe he'd spent the night outside. I'm not sure. But he was hungry, and he saw this fig tree off in the distance. And those of you who know about fig trees, my understanding from reading about it is that fig trees, they first produce the figs. And then they produce the leaves, and then the figs become ripe. Is that right from those of you that have seen fig trees? Not so sure? <clears throat> well, that's the way apparently it was in the, in, um, in, with those fig trees that they had there. At least that's the way it's described. That fig trees would, first of all, you'd begin to have the little fig coming out, and then you would have the leaves would come out, and then the figs would ripen and be ready to eat. So when you saw a fig tree with all of its foliage, all of its beautiful leaves put out, and you saw this green fig tree there, you could expect that there would be figs on it. That was the presentation of what the fig tree was saying to you. I've got figs. So he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. It wasn't the time for figs. The other fig trees didn't have their leaves out, but this tree had leaves out pretending that it should have figs. Verse 14, in response, Jesus said to it. Now, 
This is one of the strangest statements of Jesus. This is one of the strangest actions of Jesus. I mean, this, this whole experience of Jesus, of Him going into the temple and flipping over tables, this day that Jesus does all these things, is it just a day when Jesus woke up on the wrong side of the bed? I don't believe so. I believe that Jesus was perfect. He was sinless and that he never did anything unintentionally, but he was led by God in all these things that he's doing. So here he says this, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus curses the fig tree because he doesn't get breakfast from it. Interesting. Well, let's keep reading in the story and see what we pick out of this. Verse 15 continues. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Jesus has taken over the temple. He's saying, I am king. This is no longer going to be the way things are operating around here. Verse 17, then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer? What does it say? For all nations. File that away in your mind. But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God. Okay, hang on a minute. I don't understand. I thought Jesus always did things to bless and to help. What is this about Jesus going to the temple and flipping tables over? What is this about Jesus going and cursing a fig tree? Why is Jesus doing all of this? In order to really understand this, we need to look at a little bit of background. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 56. We talked before about what was going on in the temple what was taking place with those money changers. They were providing a necessary service as people came on a long journey. People from throughout the Jewish diaspora, they would come in and they would need to exchange money in order to get their sacrifices, to purchase their sacrifices. They would exchange money for the temple tax so they could have the currency of the temple. It seemed like these were all necessary functions. But the priests were using these things to make it a profit for themselves. They were taking advantage of all of these things, and, and Jerusalem was benefiting, profiting from these things. So in Isaiah chapter 56, it reveals to us what Jesus is talking about when he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. God's intention for his people was this. Look at verse 3. Do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. He says, I'm a foreigner, so I understand from 
I think what I understand of the Levitical law, that I should be cast out and I should be separated. I don't have any right to come to God. That wasn't all of the Levitical law because a foreigner could come and be joined to Israel. But here it says, don't let him say that. Don't let a person say, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. Eunuchs were looked down on as some of the lowest of the low. They were despised for here they couldn't even procreate. They didn't have that capability anymore. They were seen as outcasts. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, the sons of the foreigner will join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. It says, I'm going to give them a name even though they're foreigners, even though they're eunuchs. I'm going to give them a name that's better than if they were sons and daughters of Abraham himself. This was the original purpose of why God even chose Abraham to begin with. If you remember when God shows up to Abraham and he's there in Ur of the Chaldees and he appears to him and he says, I'm going to tell you where to go. I'm going to give you your own land. And he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing. I want for you to be a blessing to the nations around you. I want for them to see what faithfulness to God results in in a life. I want for you to become your own special people that will represent to the world the goodness of God. This was the goal of God separating a people for himself. So here, when it talks about foreigners, when it talks about eunuchs, it says that they too, if they come and if they'll faithfully follow God, they'll honor his Sabbath, that they too can inherit an everlasting name. Verse 7 continues, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Friends, a house of prayer is a joyful place place because in his presence is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore he says i'll make them joyful when they come into my house because i'll give them a name that's better than sons and daughters i'll make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for what all nations You see, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, they had missed the point. They were going through a round of ceremonies. They were apparently fulfilling their God-given role, and yet they were ostracizing the Gentiles. They were treating them as unclean. They, They treated the Samaritans as terrible people, and they probably had some reasons for why they felt this way about the nations around them. They had been mistreated. They had been afflicted. The Romans had afflicted all of this cruelty on them. The Samaritans, they had sold out and they'd intermarried and they worshipped idols and they needed to keep themselves pure 
in order to follow God. And so they began to set up all of these barriers to keep the Gentiles out of the temple, to keep them out of the house of prayer. That place where Jesus came in and flipped over the the tables, that was the outer court where the Gentiles were allowed to come in. But they weren't allowed to come close to God like the rest of the people. They were kept at a distance. They, They had built up walls. They had built up partitions to keep people away from God. They should have known better than that. When you read here, it says that those who keep the Sabbath, who follow God, their offerings would be accepted on the altar. Verse 8 continues, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So God's goal was to bring these people close to himself. The foreigner, the eunuch, he wanted for them to come and to be joyful in his house of prayer. So What does this have to do with fig trees and cursing fig trees and dens of thieves? And what is Jesus exactly talking about here? To understand that, we need to jump over to Jeremiah, another of the major prophets in the Bible. Jeremiah, go with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 in verse 6 says this, If you do not oppress the stranger or the Gentile, the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place and in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. God said if you don't oppress people, if you bring in the foreigner, if you bring in the eunuch, if you bring in the outcast, then I will treat you, I will allow you to stay and dwell in this land. But then it goes on to say, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a what? A den of thieves in your eyes. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, look, you've done exactly what these prophecies said. Instead of making it a house of prayer where the eunuch could come, the foreigner could come, and they could be joyful in the house of prayer, where everyone was welcome to be a part of this house of prayer. Instead, you've done what Jeremiah warned against. You have ostracized the outcast. You have not, you've forsaken the widow and the fatherless. And because of this, you have turned this place into a den of thieves. And Jeremiah goes on to describe the result of that. In verse 10 of chapter 8, it says, Therefore I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them, Because from the least, even to the greatest, everyone is given to what? Covetousness. They were selfishly focused. In their house of prayer, it was about them. It was about their clique, their group, coming together to worship Jesus in their way. Everyone deals falsely. We'll jump down to verse 13, and this is the result of all this. 
it's amazing. If you read, get a chance to read through Jeremiah 7 through 9 and just all of this, there's so many parallels to what Jesus is talking about here. But just going to verse 13. I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, nor fig trees on the fig tree. And the leaves shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. You see, they knew that the vine, that fruitful vine, was a representation of Israel. They knew that Israel had been represented as a fig tree. Jesus knew these prophecies. He knew that on the one hand, they could choose to be faithful, to welcome people in, those who were the outcasts of society, those who were the unloved of society, those who had less in society. And when they did this, their house would be a house of prayer for all nations and all people. But if they chose not to do this, the results were clear. It would become a den of thieves, and there would be no figs on the fig tree, no grapes on the vine. Jesus was merely fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy so that they could have their attention grabbed and realize this is what's wrong with this picture. Because here, the disciples are hoping that Jesus is going to make himself king and to assert himself in such a way that he would drive out the Romans, he would protect them from all of their these heathen enemies, he would keep all the Gentiles away, and he would set up this prosperous nation just for the Jews there in Jerusalem. That's what the disciples wanted Jesus to do. And Jesus was trying to show them that's not what my kingdom is about. Go back to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, Jesus follows this up with some incredible teaching started there by saying, have faith in God, verse 22. Have faith in God. The important thing there is God. God is the one who we're going to see is able to do the things that follow. Our faith is merely how we connect with him. And remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. So our faith isn't just based on, well, I believe God can do it and I believe God will do it. No, our faith is based on what God has promised that he will do. That's the way Jesus operated in his life, and that's the way that I'm to operate in my life too. That's what can give me faith. That's what can give me courage. To just say God is going to do it because I believe it, it can be presumption as well as it could be faith. It could be expecting that God's going to do what he's not said that he will do. Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, they're standing there probably on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, a 2,600-foot mountain there. It says, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Jesus says, it boils down to prayer. Now, here's the thing. We've been talking about how Jesus wanted to set up a house of prayer for the temple there in Jerusalem. 
But what about the scribes and the priests and the Pharisees? Didn't they pray there? Wasn't it already a house of prayer? I mean, look a little bit later on, because these chapters, Jesus is dealing back and forth with the scribes and the Pharisees. And you remember that Jesus talked about how they would pray on the street corners, how they would have their long robes and their phylacteries, and they would say their long prayers. Well, look in, in uh, chapter 11, or no, sorry, chapter 12, verse 38. Jesus is going back and forth with the scribes and the Pharisees dealing with them about all the things that they've been uh, accusing him of. In verse 38 it says, Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. They had already made it a house of prayer in part. Have you ever wondered in your life? I've been praying. We've had 10 days of prayers for years. We've been praying. Isn't this already a place of prayer? Don't we already pray? That could be what the rabbis and what the Pharisees could say to Jesus. Jesus, This already is a house of prayer. We dress in our finest, longest robes. And we pray the longest and most beautiful prayers. Sometimes we feel like we've got to approach God with some polished speech. That's the way that the priests and the the Pharisees did it. Wasn't that the way that everybody had to approach God? But Jesus says these will receive a greater condemnation for this. What is Jesus getting at here? What is the heart of the house of prayer that Jesus wants for you and for me to experience? Because I want that joy of that eunuch, that foreigner, who could be in the house of prayer with joy, worshiping God. Don't you? I believe it has to do with that fig tree. That fig tree that refused to bear fruit. That fig tree that let out its leaves and invited Jesus to come to it. But when he got there, it had nothing to offer him. Selfishly, it wanted to appear like it was a great fig tree better than all the others. But it really wasn't bearing fruit. In the Desire of Ages, it says this about Jesus cursing the fig tree. It says, this warning is for all time. Christ's act in cursing the tree which his own power had created stands as a warning to all churches and to all Christians. There are many who do not live out Christ's merciful, unselfish life. They plan and study to please themselves. They act only in reference to self. It's all about what I can do. It's all about the covetousness that Jeremiah talked about in that den of thieves. Time is of value to them only as they can gather for themselves in all the affairs of life. This is their object. Not for others, but for themselves do they minister. They're just putting out leaves, but there's no fruit for the blessing of the people who come to them. 
That's what the temple in Jerusalem had become. People would point out, look at the beautiful stones. Look at these beautiful ceremonies. But was it a real blessing to the people who came there? Did they experience the transforming power of God in their lives? That's the way Jesus wanted it. Immediately after turning over the tables, he invited the sick and the lame to come in, the children to come in. He healed people. It was a place of rejoicing. That was what the house of prayer was to be. Goes on to say, they are not in touch with humanity. This is Desire of Ages, page 584. I believe we have the slides if we want to put them up. Those who thus live for self are like the fig tree, which made every pretension, but was fruitless. They observe the forms of worship, but without repentance of faith. In profession, they honor the law of God, but obedience is lacking. They say, but do not. In the sentence pronounced on the fig tree, Christ demonstrates how hateful in his eyes is the vain pretense. He declares that the open sinner is less guilty than is he who professes to serve God, but who bears no fruit to his glory. In a letter to Timothy, Paul said it like this. He said, In the last days there will come mockers following after their own lusts, having a form of godliness, pretending that they're Christians. They sit in the pew. They come to church, but lacking the power. And Jesus says, I don't want my people to be like that. I want them to bear fruit. I want for people to be able to come to them and to taste and see that I am good because they taste my goodness in them. That's what I designed the Jewish nation for. I wanted it to be this bright, shining light for all the world to see my goodness. But instead, they focused inward. They focused selfishly. And because of that, I'm not even answering their prayers anymore. In fact, that's what he said back in Isaiah 58. Go back to Isaiah 58 with me. In Isaiah 58, saying you, it, it starts off with the question of, Why hasn't God heard? Why isn't he answering when we fast and we afflict our souls? That's what it says in verse 3. But then Jesus, God goes on to explain why it is. Verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover him. And, when you, and not hide yourself from your own flesh. That your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall bring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then verse 9 says this promise. When you live this life of making your own life a house of prayer for all nations, when you're drawing people close, when you're ministering to their needs, when you're bearing fruit in your life, it says, then you shall call on the Lord and he will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger 
and speaking wickedness. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as a noonday. It says, I'll give you light. I'll give you blessing. I will change your life in a radical way if you will live to bless others. And I'm realizing in my prayer life that it really gets down to where are my prayers focused? Am I praying like the priests and the rabbis and the scribes? Am I praying all about me and my selfish wants? Do you think about it? How much of our prayers are really all about what we want? And don't get me wrong. God has promised in Psalm 84, no good thing will I withhold from him who walks uprightly. God wants to bless your life. God wants to surprise you with wonderful things in your life. We talked last week about how he's the king on the throne and he ascended into heaven. Ephesians 4 says that he could pour out gifts on you. But in my own life, let me just give you an example. I remember being in high school, and I remember when I first had a crush on a girl in high school. I would ask God, is this the one? I was a freshman in high school. Is this the one that you want me to marry? I would say, Lord, if she's the one, then make the fan start moving. And I would open one eye and look up, fan's not moving. Hmm. Then I would find other ways. I'd flip a coin and say, Lord, help this to land this way. Or help one of those little rubber popper things. Like help this to suddenly pop out of nowhere. And I'll know that she's the one for me that I'm meant to live with. Didn't happen, so I figured she wasn't the one. Then I met this other girl, and I really thought I loved her. And I just kept praying, God, I'm not asking for signs anymore. I'm asking that you would put us together because this is the girl for me. Didn't turn out either. Then later, I actually ended up with a girl, and it wasn't the best of relationships, but hey, I had invested a lot in the relationship. And so then my prayers were more, Lord, could you just make this work out and make us have a happy marriage the way it is? Thankfully, God began to change my prayers I began reading in the Bible and I began recognizing that things in my life weren't lining up with the Bible. And I began to say, Lord, if it's not your will for us to be together anymore, then break us up. I thought that was a safe prayer to pray, that God wouldn't answer that prayer. Within three months, God broke up our relationship. Although we'd been together for three years and she'd been begging me to marry her, the relationship was over. Then I was heartbroken. I was crushed. I didn't know where to turn. It felt empty. I thought I lost everything that I had wanted all along. And it was at that moment that I finally began to surrender. Finally began to say, okay, God, what do you want for my life? It's not turning out so well. The girls that I'm choosing are not working out for me. God, I don't know where to go. I don't know what your plans are for my life. I just want to give my life completely to you. Would you know that within a month, of praying that prayer and giving my life literally into service and going into ministry that I met Leah. And I can't tell you today how glad I am that God didn't answer those prayers that I was praying before. I've seen the direction that my friends took in their lives and God blessed them and I pray for them, but I'm so glad I'm not married to them. (laughs) I'm so glad that I'm married to Leah. I've never met a woman like her before. 
God had that in mind all along. He wanted that for my life. But I was asking for selfish things. I was focused on my world and the things that I want rather than on his kingdom. And Jesus is trying to get this across to his disciples. He says, look, the Jewish nation, and he, he goes on to describe it even to, to the, um, the scribes and Pharisees themselves. He, he describes it like a fruitless vineyard. He says, the Jewish nation is just like this fig tree. They're not bearing fruit. They're focused on selfishness. And I want for my house to be a house of prayer. In God's... Uh, in uh, Steps to Christ, page 96, it says this, We are so erring and short-sighted that we sometimes ask for things that would not be a blessing to us. And our Heavenly Father, in love, answers our prayers by giving us that which would be for our highest good, that which we ourselves would desire if with vision divinely enlightened we could see all things as they really are. God may not be answering some of your prayers today because it wouldn't be for your own benefit. His kingdom is all about blessing and benefiting your life for all of eternity. So many of my prayers are about the here and now. Lord, heal so-and-so for... I just want them not to suffer. I want them not to go through this. And God cares about our suffering. God cares about our pain. But more than that, He cares about being with you throughout eternity. That's what's on Jesus' heart. Jesus wants a relationship with you. So when my prayers aren't answered, I have to ask, am I praying the right thing? Sure, I need to persist in prayer. I need to to ask God to show me the prayers that need to be prayed and to keep on praying even when I don't see answers. But sometimes, I need to just surrender. I need to recognize that the prayers that I'm praying are selfish prayers and that God wants to do something radically different in my life. That's what it says in James chapter 5, James chapter 4, about asking. Let's look at a couple verses here that, that give us the description of how God answers prayer. James chapter 4, God tells us why we don't receive more things in prayer. He first says it's because we don't ask. James chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because why? You do not ask. So first of all, You need to ask, just like Jesus said, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But then it goes on to say you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You're asking for selfish reasons. You're asking so that you can have your desires. You're asking for that brand new car that's not going to be a blessing to your life. You're going to end up in a car accident. You're going to end up with debt for the rest of your life. You're asking for that house that you're never going to be able to afford. And God just doesn't want that for your life. You're asking for your own pleasures. When we change our asking to be asking for his kingdom, it radically transforms our prayer life and we begin to see God work in more and more powerful ways. 1 John chapter 5 promises that. 
Verse 14, it says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now Jesus says, you can ask whatever you wish, but other times He says, you can ask whatever you wish in My name. There's a crucial distinction there when He's teaching His disciples about prayer. We need to put together all of what He says about prayer He's talking about praying for His kingdom. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying in the name of our King who sits on the throne. We're praying in the name of our great High Priest that gives us the boldness to approach that throne. We're praying in His name. We're praying for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. You can have confidence. You can have assurance that if you're asking to give in your life, that God will answer that prayer. I know this from my own personal experience. And I know this from what I've seen just over the past 10 days of prayer. It's been an incredible experience. We've seen so many answers to prayer in so many different lives, just from even the fact of people being drawn to the 10 days of prayer, driving past, seeing cars in the parking lot, coming in and saying, I just really needed prayer right now. But I want to tell you about my friend Zadina, who's sitting here in church today, and I'm so thankful for that because last Sabbath, she was sitting in a hospital room in her hospital bed. We went to visit her on Sabbath afternoon. It was the second time visiting her. The first time, we already realized what a blessing it might have been that she was there in the hospital. Now, God could have answered when Zadina was having pain and needing to go to the hospital. God could have instantly stopped her from having that pain. Could He not? And could have taken it away. But God allowed for her to go into the hospital. And in the hospital... The first time we went to visit her, we met a lady by the name of Kim who wanted prayer for her daughter, and we got to spend time praying for her daughter. Last Sabbath afternoon, we went in, and we got there, and we met this lady named Josie. Josie, would you wave to everybody? Josie is here for the first time in our church today. Friends, if Zadina hadn't been in the hospital, I don't know that Josie would be sitting here in church with us today. So I'm glad that God didn't answer our prayer the first time we went to see Zadina because God still had more work to do. And I believe that God didn't even answer our prayer for Zadina to be healed that day because God wanted to do an even deeper thing in Zadina's own heart. Because we went back to visit her and I think it was Wednesday night. Wednesday night after the 10 days of prayer, Faustino and Alicia had been texting Leah earlier and they got a group of us together and said, we've just got to go back. And honestly, it was a little difficult to get in the hospital, but thankfully the security guard was helpful. But I was just thinking, you know, this is a little inconvenient to go this time of night, to go and pray, but we need to go and see Zadina, so we'll go see her tonight. She wanted to have anointing. James chapter 5 tells us, if anyone's sick, to call the elders of the church and to have them come and to pray for them and to anoint them with oil. So we go there into her room, and Zadina was in pain. It was obvious. We shared a little bit about this uh, the other night on Thursday night. She was in pain. It was obvious. The nurse said, would you rate your pain level? She said, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. She just kept going higher. She was in visible pain. She was suffering. And as she was there, just kind of curled up on her bed, 
She said, today, I don't know, I just cried out to God and I said, okay, I surrender everything to you, God. I just want you to forgive me of everything and I just want to give absolutely everything to you. Friends, that's the place that God wants to take you and I. Whatever it takes to get us there, he's willing for us to go through it because he has a bigger picture in mind for your life. He has eternity in mind for your life. He wants to live with you in a place of wonderful joy in his presence throughout eternity. And so you may go through some difficult times on this planet. You may wonder why your prayers aren't answered instantly. Zadina wondered why she was there in pain when she'd been asking for God to heal her. So we read James chapter 5 and we knelt around her and we began to pray. Zadina later told us that as we prayed, she felt things begin to happen in her body that needed to happen. By the time we said amen, Zadina literally sat up in the bed, hopped out of the bed and said, I'll be right back. And within two minutes, we knew that a miracle had happened. And I'll put up her post here on the screen from just the the next day. This is what she said on Facebook. She said, praise God Almighty, I get to go home today. She'd been in the hospital for 10 days. Things weren't happening. The doctors were trying absolutely everything that they knew how to do. And they were at the point of being ready to have to do surgery. God worked a miracle last night on me, she says. Friends, God's timing is perfect timing. God is wanting to work in your life. But God is wanting to work in the timing that will seal your heart for eternity, that will seal the heart of the people around you for eternity, that will draw people into closer fellowship with Him. He's wanting to teach you and I to pray prayers that aren't selfish prayers, that aren't just prayers about our little lives and the things that concern us, although He cares infinitely about you. He counts the number of hairs on your head. He cares what's going on in your life. But more than that, He wants to save you. He wants to live with you throughout eternity. And he wants the people around you, like Josie sitting in the hospital room, he wants for them to be in church with you. And so, friends, if I'm in the hospital next week, praise God, maybe he can use that as an influence. If you're in the hospital next week, praise God, maybe he can use that. If your car breaks down this week, by all means, ask God to help you with it. But praise God, maybe he can use that to turn things around for you. But know this, there is one prayer that you can always be certain that God will answer. In Steps to Christ, or actually the Desire of Ages, it says this, page 266, when we pray for earthly blessings, the answer to our prayer may be delayed, or God may give us something other than we ask, but not so when we ask for deliverance from sin. It is His will to cleanse us from sin, to make us His children, and to enable us to live a holy life. There are some prayers that take time. There are some prayers that require us to be unselfish, to be totally surrendered, to having the King live in our hearts to make it a house of prayer. But today, if you're needing forgiveness for sin, don't think that you need a process for that to take place. You can come to the throne of grace now 
and ask for forgiveness, and he will give it to you now. So this morning, I believe God wants to make this a house of prayer for all nations. I believe that that was Jesus' manifesto, his explanation of his government. We experienced the inauguration yesterday where the clear policy is buy American, hire American. I'm not getting into politics this morning. But Jesus' policy is this. In Acts chapter 1, before ascending into heaven, the disciples ask him, are you going to set up your kingdom now? Is this the time when you set up your kingdom here? And he said, it's not for you to know times and epics, but I will tell you this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God's goal is to draw all people to himself. God's goal is inclusive. God's goal is to bring fellowship into this house of prayer, to bring the outcasts in, to bring those who need Jesus most into his house of prayer, that it could be a house of prayer for all nations. If you want that in your own heart, in your own home, if you want that for our church, I just want to invite you to kneel with me in prayer. If you're able, if you're not able, God knows and he sees your heart. Father, we're kneeling before you in prayer this morning, asking that you would make our hearts a house of prayer, asking that you would forgive us for our selfish prayers, our prayers that are focused inward, the prayers that are just like those scribes and Pharisees who for pretense made long prayers. Lord, we simply want to pray for your will to be done. We want to pray that your kingdom would advance in our lives and in the lives of others around us. Lord, we want for this house to be a house of prayer for all nations, for all people, not excluding anyone, not setting up walls, not pushing anyone away. And we want the same for our own hearts, Father. We want to bear fruit in our lives so that all people can taste and see that you are good. In the silence of your own heart, just tell Jesus how you're feeling this morning and how you desire for him to make you a house of prayer. And having made that commitment, I want to invite you to make another one. By God's grace, starting this Wednesday, we're going to be going on a journey in our weekly prayer meetings from 7 to 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. We're going to be focusing for the next 10 weeks. We've had 10 days of prayer, but when the disciples began to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that they could reach all nations, they didn't stop with just 10 days. They kept praying. For the next 10 weeks, we're going to be focusing, and the theme will be on connection with Christ in John chapter 15, abiding in Christ that we can bear fruit. If you long to be more fruitful in your life, I just want you to feel free right now, every eye is closed, every head bowed, just raise your hand and say, Jesus, I want to be at every one of those 10 prayer meetings possible over the next 10 weeks to experience a life of abiding in Christ and of being fruitful. Oh God, 
we long for this place to be a house of prayer. We long to experience what we have experienced over the past 10 days in a greater and more powerful way. We long for the revival that you've begun in our hearts to not end now, Father, but we long to pray and pray more until the coming of Jesus. But we want to pray according to your will. Father, teach us to pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.